Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. One of the things that I think, and Ari, maybe this is something you've covered or are thinking of, that one of the things that strikes me is, you know, these legislatures are part-time legislatures. So you would think that, you know, here you are, you're a part-time legislature. You only have so many legislative days. And you've got a pandemic that you have to deal with. And how <laughs> okay. much of their legislative calendar is actually being used on to pass voting suppression laws? Well, I mean, I followed most of the Georgia legislature, and they devoted more time to voter suppression than any other issue. I'm pretty confident in saying that if you look at the committees, the House, Senate, the debate, I mean, it was the overriding issue in the state that they were dealing with. And I think it's been the same thing everywhere around the country. This has been the top, the number one issue they've been focused on is making it harder to vote and trying to succeed legislatively where they failed through litigation or intimidation in 2020. Hey, everybody. Uh, Normally, we just lead off with our theme from Leo Kotke, but I just thought I'd depart from the norm today by opening with that clip from uh, Mark Elias and Ari Berman. Mark, if you're a regular Listener to this podcast is the lead lawyer for the uh, National Democratic Party. Even if you're not a regular listener, that's still what he does. And Ari Berman is a journalist and author who covers voting rights. Now bring us in, Leo. Hey, everybody, you got to mix things up, right? Huh? Huh? Uh, You know, I've lost count of how many times Mark Elias has done this podcast. Full disclosure, Mark is still my lawyer. More importantly, he was my lawyer in 2008, uh, 2009, when I won my Senate seat in Minnesota by 312 votes out of uh, 2.9 million casts. The recount was uh, really less than two months. I won in time to be seated with the rest of my class, but the legal wrangling went on and I wasn't seated till after July 4th. And uh, Mark did a magnificent job. He's also the lead election lawyer for the National Democratic Party. And um, we've had occasion to have Mark on this podcast quite a number of times, especially during this uh, past eventful year. This is the first time Ari Berman has uh, joined me. He's been writing about election rights uh, for quite a while uh, for a relatively young man with The Nation and Mother Jones. And we'll get to that interview in just a couple moments. Uh, But first, I just want to tell you that next week I'm going to have Malcolm Nance 
intelligence officer, and uh, Natasha Bertrand, uh, who uh, writes about intelligence matters for Politico on Russia. A lot of big events regarding Russia, of course, uh, this past week, uh, a lot of sanctions, that kind of thing. But one of those big pieces of news was not that the Trump campaign colluded with the Russians. We knew that. We knew that. Uh, a lot was made out of the fact that uh, the Biden administration confirmed that Konstantin Kalimnik, uh, who is a Russian uh, agent and who had met on a couple occasions with the Trump campaign through Manafort, and Manafort had given Kalimnik internal polling data from the Trump campaign. A lot's been made that it's been confirmed that Kalimnik gave that to uh, Russian intelligence, shared that information. Well, of course he did. We knew that. In fact, the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee had already released the report last year saying that. We knew that. And so anybody who says, oh, it's now it's been confirmed that the Trump campaign colluded with the Russians, you're just buying into every piece of Republican bullshit that you've been hearing over the last few years. Yes, we know they colluded. We know the Trump campaign colluded. And let me tell you, just looking at this this one piece. So, Manafort passed off internal polling data to Kalimnik, a known Russian agent. Now, what is internal polling data? Well, it's internal polling data. Internal polling data is the polling data that the campaign has internally. Now, what in campaigns do is they hire pollsters, and the pollsters do a lot of polling, and they do, and analyze it, and the result is internal polling data. Their job, they get paid a lot, these pollsters, and they deserve it because they tell the campaign, oh, who do we target and what kind of messages and what are we, what are we getting from polling them? Now, you pass that off to the Russians. You pass that off to Kalimnik. Of course, he's passing that off. <laughs> the idea <laughs> that we had to have Oh, the Biden intel community confirmed that it was passed off. <laughs> well, okay, you know where it was passed off to? It, it was passed off to the Internet Research Agency. The Internet Research Agency was this uh, thing in St. Petersburg, this building that sent out stuff to Facebook and all other kinds of social media. And you know what they did with the internal polling data? They looked at it and they went, oh, I see. Oh, also, by the way, we knew, we knew that this internal polling data was from four states, from Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. Gee, what was important about Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Oh, they were the states that gave the election to Trump? Oh, huh. Well, what did internal polling data tell you? 
Oh, you mean black people in those states uh, were really responsive when you said uh, that Hillary Clinton uh, called uh, black men super predators in the 90s? Huh. Well, why doesn't the Internet uh, Research Agency target those people who in Detroit and in Philadelphia and in Milwaukee with uh, stuff saying that, and, and, and especially black people who have expressed interest in Black Lives Matter. Why don't we do that? Oh, and is it a coincidence that the undervotes in Detroit and Milwaukee and Philadelphia were way more than the margin of victory for Trump? Gee whiz, come on. Really? Is it big news that the Trump campaign colluded? Is it big news that Roger Stone was in contact with WikiLeaks and coordinating when to release that and that the Russians <laughs> that the Russians gave that to WikiLeaks? You know, the Trump people go like yeah, no, no, there was no collusion because, um, no. What? Oh, my God. We knew there was collusion. It was so obvious that it was collusion. Not only obvious, but it, we, it was, we knew it. We knew it. We knew it. We knew it. It was in the Mueller report. He basically said, we are not using collusion, the word collusion, because that's not a legal term. Okay, we are not using that because collusion, you, you can't be convicted of colluding with someone. You can be convicted of conspiracy, but no one, no jury foreman has said, Your Honor, we find the defendant guilty of being in cahoots. It's not a legal term collusion. That's why it wasn't in the Mueller report that they colluded, but they colluded. It wasn't the Mueller report. Mueller, there's plenty of collusion in the Mueller report. And for us, anyone, to say, oh, finally, 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 we have proof there's collusion is baloney. Okay, enough of me blowing off my steam here. Ugh. Wow. Okay. There. There, I'm back. I'm back. Well, we have a great one today. It was Mark Elias and Ari Burton. <laughs> be right. Yeah, we right with you. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners 
at babble.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babble.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, Ari, you're friends with my daughter. I am, yes. And we're not going to post the picture that she sent me. <laughs> are you there <laughs> i'm here yeah i'm here i'm just um, i'm seeing where this is going no no it's not going anywhere we're not going to post it um so you when you were at the nation uh her friend from college worked also with you right yeah sam graham felson and yes. then that's how i became friends with with your time. daughter and at one point in time i saw your infamous nixon bathroom i can't remember when well not everyone gets to see the nixon bathroom yeah, and I and and Thomason evidently sent you a photo of some late night carousing that we did. That is uh, not safe for the internet. We're not going to post that picture. No, but I'm glad you told everyone that it exists, though. Look, you were in your twenties, early twenties. Yeah, <laughs> early twenties. You're having fun with a group of friends. Yes, exactly. Okay, Mark Elias, you're an election lawyer. Right, I'm still an election lawyer. Nothing, nothing has changed. Okay, <laughs> okay. You could say like a great election lawyer. You're a f- unbelievable. You're the best. You're the best election lawyer, and Ari is the best journalist about elections. That's why we're both on the podcast. That's right. That's that's all we get on the Al, Al Franken podcast is the very best. That's what I. That's who I work with. <laughs> okay, look. Uh, let me get right to it. Georgia. Uh, what Georgia made me worry about was not just Georgia, but other states and Georgia. And what made me worry most about Georgia is the authority ultimately going to the state legislature from local election officials. And that feels like a formula for stealing elections. And I worry that that's going to happen in Georgia. And I worry that that's going to happen in other states where the state legislatures and the governor's mansion is controlled by Republicans. Am I wrong to have that? That be my primary worry. Who's taking it first? You got to call on someone, Al. Uh, I'll, I'll go first, and then I would love to hear what, what Mark. <laughs> I got to call on someone. Already <laughs> off to a great start. You got to call on us. Do I do I have to moderate since we have a former senator and a lawyer? Do I have to moderate as the journalist? Do, yeah, do maybe we should switch Al's this around, Aria, and okay. you should ask no. the questions of me and Al. Boy, I've lost control. Okay, well, I'll I'll moderate and answer first, and then I'd love to hear what Mark okay. has to say about this. <laughs> to me, I thought that was the most disturbing part of the Georgia bill. Obviously, other parts of it got a lot of attention. So I'm right. 
Yes, you are. You are right. <laughs> okay, that's the first thing you start you are right. with. As yes, a guess. that other things got the Thank attention, <laughs> not being able to give food and water to people, things like that. But I think that yes. the fact that the state legislature can now appoint a majority of members to the state elections board, and the fact that the state elections board can then take over up to four county election boards, which are in charge of certifying elections at the local level, and also in the legislation, there it makes it explicit that there can be unlimited challenges to voters. So they're both going to be hearing unlimited challenges to voters and also potentially there could be new fights over certification. And this is the exact thing Trump wanted, right, in 2020. He wanted to make it easier to throw out votes and he wanted some sort of mechanism to not be able to certify the results. And now both of those things are a possibility in Georgia in a way that they might not have been a possibility in November. So I I agree um, in... I didn't call on you, Sorry. Mark, but okay, right. go ahead. So I agree in large measure, but I, I want to set a bit of a context here, which is that I resisted um, and continued to resist the notion that Rassenberger was some kind of hero or, or nonpartisan actor. He did his job, but he didn't do more than that. At every turn, he gave the benefit of the doubt to... Republicans and to the Trump campaign. I mean, let's remember that the first recount, which was done by hand, was actually only supposed to be a risk-limiting audit, but which he turned into a full-hand recount, which was fine. It it reaffirmed that Joe Biden had won the election. But it is not like we are moving the authority here from a bunch of nonpartisan actors into the hands of partisan actors. Now, I will grant you, I'd rather have the Secretary of State be in charge because he's directly accountable to the electorate. And gerrymandering with the state legislature makes makes it more problematic. But I do think it's a matter of degree, not a matter of kind. I think that that the problem that we saw in Georgia, the problem that we saw in Michigan, where remember, they almost didn't certify the election results because of the bipartisan nature of the canvassing board, is a more fundamental failure of the Republican Party to want to support um, consent of the governed, peaceful transfer of power, whatever you want to describe it. it and, and it's not just in the manner by which this one office is chosen, because, because in states all around the country, there are going to be opportunities for election officials to throw sand in the gears if that's what they are want to do. And we have a tradition of election officials not throwing sand in the gears. And I'm very worried that this Georgia provision does advance the ball in the wrong direction, but it really speaks to a larger pathology that we see right now on the right to try to use these certification procedures, these kind of administrative uh, administrative issues around elections as opportunities to essentially frustrate the will of the majority. What you're saying is you can fear that also from secretaries of state. You can fear it from secretaries of state. You can fear it from uh, county canvassing boards. Um, You can uh, fear it from um, county registrars in some states where those are elected positions or they're appointed by the governor. So, yes, the Georgia situation is not, you know, is not good. And I certainly agree with Ari about the challenges. The challenges are to me one of the untold stories, or not untold, because I'm sure Ari has told the story, but one of the undertold stories about the Georgia law are the challenge provisions uh, and the way those have been changed. 
Explain those. The challenge, you mean like challenging uh, mail-in ballots? Essentially challenging voters. Okay. Who show up at the polls? It can be either qualifications to vote in person or qualifications to vote by mail. And, you know, this is not a hypothetical problem because we wound up suing several counties in Georgia. And then on behalf of Fair Fight, which is Stacey Abrams' organization, we are still in litigation against an organization called True the Vote over their effort to challenge 360,000 voters in the runoff elections. And that was done pre-ballot casting based on faulty and, frankly, you know, nonsense arguments about, uh, you know, mass, mass challenger efforts. Um, and what this law does is effectively require counties to administer or to, to hear those challenges um, in a way that can really gum up the works and, and, and disadvantage voters. Yeah, just to add to, to what Mark says, the way the law is written now is that these challenges have to be heard. They're required to be heard within 10 days of the challenge. And if the county decides not to hear the challenge, the county can be sanctioned for not hearing the challenges. And of course, looming over them is the fact that the state election board can take over what they view as underperforming counties. And they already have pointed to Fulton County in Atlanta, the largest county in the state and one of the most democratic counties in the state, as the number one priority for takeover. And and what were the nature of these challenges? What were these challenges? They basically were saying that people were ineligible to vote. They had moved or or there was some other reason for ineligibility. But the fact that they challenged 340,000 people during the runoff elections, I mean, Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, I had never seen anything like that before. I'd never seen so many voters challenged in such a short period of time. And very few, if any, of the challenges were successful, but it laid the groundwork for a strategy in future elections that could either result in people being uh, removed from the rolls or their votes being thrown out erroneously, uh, or it could lead to counties being sanctioned or possibly taken over if their challenges aren't heard in a way that the state election board or the state legislature likes. And also, it could just lead to a lot of confusion over election certification. Uh, if there's a close election, there's all of these voter challenges, and it can also make it easier for one side to claim that the election is illegitimate if they don't like the way these challenges have turned out. Yeah, Ari is exactly right. Um, I think I said 360,000 or 340,000. But essentially, these were a, a just a modern form or the most recent form of, of caging challenges. These were based on lists that had been, had been generated based on comparing various databases. They were largely inaccurate, almost well, overwhelmingly inaccurate. Uh, most of the counties, and this is where what Ari's saying is so important, most of the counties refused to honor the challenges because they were abusive. Um, we sued a handful of counties because it looked like they were going to. Um, but this will require them to resolve these challenges, hear these challenges within 10 days or else, as he said, risk being taken over by the state. And the mere the mere logistics. I mean, just and to your to answer your question, no, I've never in my twenty five years of of doing this work, I have never seen a challenge program as large as that. I couldn't tell you another instance where even ten thousand voters were challenged, no less three hundred and and forty thousand, and that was after the general election. So I think you know what what I think Ari's getting at is exactly right. These challenges in the runoff were experiential of what Republicans wanted to do coming out of November. And now this law is experiential 
based on them having failed in these runoffs. Is this reminiscent of 18? I mean, I know in 18, of course, Governor Kemp, who at the time had been uh, Secretary of State, uh, did a real job on disqualifying people to vote, right? Yes, he did a number of things in 2018 to make voting harder and to have ballots not count. And again, he did that as Secretary of State, which is the reason why I say that the takeover by the legislature, while problematic, let's not white, let's not you know whitewash what it was like when you know Kemp was Secretary of State in 2018. So there's a larger problem about the culture of the Republican Party that when it when it is able to control the administration of elections, all too often it aims to disenfranchise rather than to serve voters. But I do think that this new law will allow what we saw in 2018 to be done on steroids and to see much, much greater abuses of the of the process and greater disenfranchisement. Yeah. And I think if you look, there are all these problems in 2018. And then there are a lot of problems in the primary in June of 2020, when people were still voting at 12.30 a.m. at night, for example. But November of 2020 went relatively smoothly compared to 2018. And one of the reasons it went relatively smoothly was because a lot of things were reformed, you know, like the consent decree that Donald Trump loves to talk about. But it was harder for Georgia, for example, to throw out ballots. What was it? Tell me about the consent decree. Well, Mark, you should probably tell them about the consent decree, given that you played a leading role in it. Yeah. So um, you may remember that Donald Trump on his infamous phone call complains about a consent decree. Um, He complained about it several other times in public. Oddly, very oddly, he he acts as if it was a consent decree between Stacey Abrams and Kemp, when in fact, neither Kemp nor Fairfight nor Stacey Abrams were parties to it. This was a result of a lawsuit that I brought on behalf of the Democratic senatorial um, and congressional campaign committees along with the state party of Georgia uh, against uh, the state of Georgia for the way in which they were processing and rejecting mail ballots based on signature match. Basically, the Georgia was both rejecting ballots based on signature match where there was no uniform standards of training, and they were not providing adequate cure opportunities for voters whose ballots had been rejected. Cure opportunities are if your your ballot was rejected, you couldn't go and say, no, 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 no. Wait. Yeah, there was not, a, there was not an uh, adequate way yeah. for the voter to contest that, in fact, it was their signature or right. cured if there was a signature error. So the state of Georgia, we sued right. them and the state of Georgia was going to lose. So the state of Georgia did the thing that states oftentimes do when you sue them and they're going to lose, which is they settle. Uh, and they settle to avoid, you know, a, a harsher outcome and to avoid legal fees and, and other costs. But they settled and we entered into a consent decree that had the effect of dramatically lowering the rejection rates of mail ballots um, of, of signature match. Now, we don't have final data yet, so we will have we'll be able to say for certain this is what the rejection rates were uh, when all of the data is in. But the data so far looks like when you look at cured ballots, so the you know, the final count of ballots that were either not rejected or rejected and cured, uh, as Ari said, the system worked. And in fact, there was an audit, and Ari reminded me whether it was an audit in Fulton or what county. There was an audit in Cobb County of 15,000 ballots that found two mismatched signatures and zero cases of fraud. Yeah. And that's really important for Ari, I think, not to take over the question, but Ari, those two were not 
errors where someone got to vote. They were actually errors where someone's ballot was erroneously rejected. Yeah, I think it was like a husband and wife couple and yep. their ballots were rejected. So, but even if it was, I mean, it wasn't two cases of fraud, but even if it had been two out of 15,000, that would be an extremely low number um, to begin with, it, given that they were claiming there was widespread fraud. But the, the point I wanted to make, Al, was that we had a relatively smooth election in 2020 compared to 2018, which was which was a disaster. But now they're putting in place all of these new restrictions on voting. 16 or 17 different provisions of the bill make it harder to vote in one form or another. And it's much more likely that elections in Georgia in 2022 are going to resemble what elections were like in Georgia in 2018. Like, it's not like Georgia had a really long history of running smooth elections. Like, they had a history of disastrous elections. Then they had one really good election or relatively good election in November. And then they changed the entire system to go back to what it was like in, in 2018. So I think like there are different proposals, there are different provisions that I think are disturbing. And we've talked about some of them already. But I think if the cumulative attempt of it, it's just one after another, after another, after another, in a state that already had a lot of voter suppression in the state that already didn't have a very good track record of running elections. That's what makes me really, really nervous about the overall impact of this law. What is this going to do? Uh, is this going to spread nationally? Yes, it already has. And in fact, one of the one of the frustrations that I have is, you know, a week before Georgia passed its law, Iowa passed a law that is every bit as suppressive as the Georgia law. And there's been relatively little attention um, to it. We brought litigation there on behalf of LULAC of Iowa. That law similarly makes it harder to vote um, curtails early vote, curtails absentee ballot applications, uh, criminalizes, threatens election workers with criminal sanctions if they're too helpful to voters. It also, by the way, um, shortens election day itself by an hour, uh, reduces poll hours by by one hour. That was Iowa. And then we have Georgia. And now, of course, we're looking at states as wide and varied as Texas, Montana, Missouri, Florida, Arizona, New Hampshire, uh, Ohio, the list goes on and on. So this is not just a situation in which one state legislature is doing the wrong thing. This is now the ethos of the Republican Party. In fact, I would argue that the only thing that unites the Republican Party right now is their their unified commitment to make voting harder. Yeah, I mean, the fact that there have been 340, no, it's even higher than that. The fact that there have been 361 new restrictions on voting introduced in 47 states in the span of three months is just unprecedented. I mean, I've been covering this issue for a decade. I've never seen so much le legislation to restrict voting rights introduced in such a- In 47 states, so they must be doing it in blue states. They're that introducing it in blue states. A lot it's of not courage. not passing in blue states, but- I know, but you know, you got to admire <laughs> that. <laughs> One of the things that I think, and Ari, maybe this is something you've covered or are thinking of, is that one of the things that strikes me is, you know, these legislatures are part-time legislatures. So you would think that, you know, here you are, you're a part-time legislature, you only have so many legislative days, and you've got a pandemic that you have to deal with. <laughs> and how okay. much of their legislative calendar is actually being used on to pass voting suppression laws? Well, I mean, I followed most of the Georgia legislature, and they devoted more time to voter suppression than any other issue. I'm pretty confident in saying that if you look at the committees, the House, Senate, the debate, I mean, it was the overriding issue in the state that they were dealing with. And I think it's been the same thing 
everywhere around the country. This has been the top, the number one issue they've been focused on is making it harder to vote and trying to succeed legislatively where they failed through litigation or intimidation in 2020. And clearly the message wasn't let's have high turnout in the future. The message was how do we reduce turnout in the future and how do we take over the election process in a way that benefits us. Because as Mark mentioned, they're they're trying to take over election administration, but they're also just trying to criminalize the, the act of running elections. I mean, that's pretty much all they're trying to do in Texas is all of these provisions in the law, basically saying that election officials can be charged for felonies if they don't allow, for example, Republicans to be able to film you while you cast your ballot or while you receive assistance from voters. So, I mean, they're just trying to take over the election process in all the ways in which they weren't able to take it over in 2020. Yeah. And I mean, again, that's just a different way of thinking about how irresponsible what the Republicans are doing is. Because one way to look at it is to say, this is how bad the laws are. Another way is to say, this is how wide scope, you know, how, how broad they are. But a third one is to say, you know, in the in the world in which you have a limited number of things a legislature can accomplish, this is how your legislators are spending their time. And this is this means that that other legislation that would improve the lives of the citizenry in the middle of a pandemic are not getting the attention that they that they need. If you look at what Republicans have proposed in Congress, for example, when when they controlled Congress. It was really very little. It was judges, you know, in the Senate and a tax cut. And uh, they failed on getting rid of the ACA. And that was kind of it. They don't really have many things they want to do other than win and um, cut taxes and appoint judges. Doesn't really seem like they have much. They don't really care for government too much and so this is they just want to they want to take it over okay we we have to we have to break for a commercial and uh here it is man that sunset is gorgeous grill patio sunset hard to get better than that unless you're browsing carvana's inventory while you soak it all in Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. It was interesting to me when, of course, Delta and and Coca-Cola came out against their changes in state election law. And 
that the uh, Speaker of the House in Georgia basically said, well, we're going to cut Delta's tax break on fuel, right? (laughs) And it was like, wait a minute. So basically, this was a quid pro quo. I mean, you, you gave a tax break to Delta on their fuel, not because it was good for Georgia's economy, not because it was good for Delta uh, employees or, or it, it's just crazy how transparent they are. Well, it's interesting also that Delta and Coca-Cola didn't actually come out against the legislation until it had actually passed. And then they came out for it right yeah, before the was... session ended. <laughs> so Republicans couldn't retaliate against them uh, in time. And so, I mean, I do think it's very significant that these corporations are coming out against this kind of stuff. And I think it has the potential to make a difference in places like Texas and Arizona. But I also don't want to give the corporations too much credit. And it, it also just disturbs me that we're in a situation where in our country where we have to depend on places like Delta and Coca-Cola to protect our voting rights. I mean, if we had fundamental protections of our voting rights in this country, it really wouldn't matter what Delta or Coca-Cola or Major League Baseball or anyone else did because people would feel like their voting rights are protected. But voting rights are so fragile right now that we're we're looking for sports teams and corporations to protect the vote because the Republican Party won't. That's just a disturbing situation to me. And McConnell, my advice to corporate CEOs is to stay out of politics. Now, <laughs> wow, <It is. laughs> he must have been saying those words come out of my mouth. He said, stay out of politics, but I'm not talking about donations, which was. Well, then, then he, he clarified, yes. Do you think anyone has done more to give corporations more influence in politics than Mitch McConnell? Uh. No, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't, that would be easy. I mean, his crusade for decades has been getting rid of limits on money in politics so that corporations can have as much influence as possible. So he, in a sense, created the very situation that he's now seemingly decrying. Well, no, he's really just decrying them uh <laughs> <laughs> them actually taking a position on anything not he does he still wants them to give money yeah it's them. like you corporations are fine <laughs> as long as they don't support voting rights yeah uh yeah just they don't get on the wrong side of actual issues uh no it's it's amazing uh so is corporate america going to save us from from the Ohio legislature and the Pennsylvania legislature and the Michigan legislature doing what the Georgia legislature Look, So I, I have a pretty uncompromising view of this, which is that corporations are very good at solving problems they want to solve. You know, I wrote a piece about this recently that, you know, that when corporations want, want to exert political power, when they want to exert their influence over state legislatures, they know how to do it and they tend to be quite successful at it. And so while I am happy to see corporate America issue statements, I would also like to see them put the muscle of their lobbying and public relations um, departments behind those efforts. Because I do think that corporate America can be part of the solution in heading off these terrible laws if they want to be part of it, as opposed to just 
you know, tweeting from their from their government affairs department or their public relations department something nice about voting. I also think that, frankly, corporate America could do things to solve some of the logistical problems. You know, I, I mentioned in the article, you know, what if we, you know, what if every bank and convenience store and grocery store had drop boxes? You know, they all have um, surveillance 24 hours a day. They have surveillance cameras. What if every retailer online and physical provided access to voter registration and uh, absentee ballot application requests? You know, there's lots of ways that that corporations can be ingenious in solving problems. The question is whether or not corporate America is going to step up and do that or whether they just want to issue releases. Well, didn't Georgia limit the number of drop boxes? Yes. That's the problem is that the Georgia law, for example, explicitly says they can only be inside polling locations unless it's a state emergency, uh, which it's no longer going to be because of COVID. And so basically that defeats the whole purpose of a drop box if they have to be in the polling locations, we actually have to go inside the polls to do it. Like in Georgia or in Florida, they're basically saying you have to show ID and they have to, someone has to be actually manning it at all times. So again, it's not, it's basically just like voting. It's not a drop box. So, I mean, it, that's one of the things they're, they're trying to get rid of. But I think Mark is right. I think the jury's still out about whether this is a PR campaign or a legitimate campaign to try to defeat these kind of things. Just this, Is this going to be like their Black History Month tweet? where they do it because they need to for PR, or they are going to really get their uh, hands dirty. And I think the the thing that would get the, the attention of Republicans more than anything was would be if they would cut off donations. Because there was a report from Public Citizen saying that these uh, state legislators that are pushing these voting restrictions have gotten $50 million from corporate America over the past decade, I think. So, I mean, if they were going to say to Texas Republicans, we will not fund you any longer, I think that would get their attention. And they would say, what do we want more to get rid of drop boxes or to get our checks to get reelected? And I think, but they haven't gone that far yet. Well, that's, that's over the last, how many years? I, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to pull it up right now. Because I, 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 is it possible, is it possible that corporate America is changing because of just generationally, I would say that corporate America may be less racist and more diverse and just different? Here's a stat, by the way. Since 2015, corporations have contributed $50 million to the state lawmakers supporting voter suppression bills. Trade groups have given another $36 million. So it's really $86 million since 2015 that corporations and their allies have given to state lawmakers supporting voter suppression. And that's a lot of money, particularly when you consider that state legislative elections are a lot cheaper. Wait a minute. I, I don't get that. Supporting voter suppression, you mean, or, or state le- just supporting, supporting state, state legislators who are Slavers. supporting voter suppression? Sorry. State legislators, presumably, who support voter suppression do other things. <laughs> not these days. Not. They used to, not these days. Well, not these days, but I'm saying from like, uh, 2015 to recently, I think, may have done other things uh, on behalf of uh, these uh, these corporations, like tax breaks for the corporation, or like building a road up, up you know, to their headquarters. Mark, do you, do you have any thoughts about what I 
kind of asked about, like, is corporate America maybe changing a little bit? Look, I don't know. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not mm-hmm. an expert on on sort of what corporate America, you know, what it's thinking or how it mm-hmm. how it is composed or why it why it you know takes mm-hmm. the positions it does. I guess I got to get somebody else to do that. <laughs> what I will say though is that, um, you know, we expect that corporate America can be good citizens in the communities when they want to be, and they can be effective when they want to be. I pointed out recently that in 2005, Walmart came out in favor of reauthorizing the Voting Rights Act that was ultimately reauthorized in 2006. And by all accounts, they put a full-throated effort behind it, and and it worked. It moved, you know, it moved George Bush, it moved the Republicans to a place where it was helpful. The Business Roundtable was part of that effort. It wasn't just Walmart, but it was, you know, big business. They put a real push behind reauthorizing the Voting Rights Act. This was 2006 when the, when the Senate extended the Voting Rights Act. When corporations want to get behind significant policies, they more often than not are successful. Now, that's part of the problem that people point to in the way the legislative uh, and governmental process works. But in this instance, I think it is if corporate America is, is ultimately says, well, we did the best we could, but what could we do? Then that's how we will know that they didn't really try. Mm-hmm. How many? I mean, we have all these other states that are legislating in the near future, right? Yes. Yeah. Voting right, yeah. voting laws, and so do, do those corporations have a any kind? I mean, this is a question you don't know the answer to, I guess. Uh, any kind of proactive role that, well, let's say that they can play and say, no, don't do this. I mean, Ari, I'd be curious what your reporting on this is. I mean, there's obviously been a lot of talk about corporate America banding together to do these things. Uh, And look, we've seen some action. I mean, Patagonia, you know, for one, has taken real steps, but they were already very active in the voting space. We've seen, you know, a coalition of Largely surprise, surprise, Patagonia. Right. We've seen a coalition of African American CEOs and 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 leadership in corporate America step forward. And let's see what the rest of the corporate community does. Yeah, I mean, you you saw Texas based companies, uh, American American Airlines, uh, Dell, some other some other places speak out against the legislation. There, uh, you there was a call of corporate executives saying that they want to get more involved, that they have to do more, uh, that they weren't they weren't afraid of the backlash in Georgia. Now, obviously, some corporations are going to be afraid of the backlash in Georgia. So I don't think they're all going to speak with um, one voice here. Uh, but I do think there are, I mean, look, it's Texas, right? So like pretty much every corporation has some sort of footprint in Texas. And then a number of really important ones are based there. And the question is, are they going to be able to flip enough votes in the Texas House, because it's still a fairly narrow majority there, to defeat this legislation? In the Arizona legislature, they have a one-vote majority Republicans in both chambers, in the House and the Senate. So you only need to flip one Republican to kill all of these efforts in Arizona, for example. So, I mean, they could do this, and I think they would be. But 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 you got to flip that before <laughs> in the midterms, right? 
Well, I'm, no, I mean, I, I'm just saying, like, mm. flip it in terms of <laughs> persuading them not to support the legislation. Like, if if, oh, if one Republican okay, okay. decides I don't want <laughs> I to support this in Arizona, it dies. Unlike in Georgia, for gotcha. example, I, I get and in Texas, okay. the Texas House is narrower than the Georgia Senate or the Georgia House, so they could also defeat it in Texas. Like, even though it's a red state, it's still. I mean, people thought that. Democrats might actually take over the legislature in 2020. That didn't happen in the Texas House, but the point is, is it's not as red as you would think it is. So there, there are places where they could exert influence here. Corporations. Uh, but so far, they haven't slowed it down yet. I mean, things are still moving. Things are still passing out of committee. Bills are still being debated. I think things may have slow down a little bit in the wake of Georgia, but it still seems to me like the Republican Party is going full speed ahead here in states all across the country. You know why they worry? Because it's not as red as they want it to be. <laughs> so it's the only way to get to keep it there, I guess. I mean, Texas is changing, obviously. So is Arizona, so is Georgia. This, this is how they approach <laughs> holding on to uh, the state legislatures, holding on to you know their Senate seats, et cetera. Instead of actually, oh, you know, trying to do stuff for people. Pretty sad, huh? Yeah, look, there was a time not that long ago when there was a bipartisan belief that consent of the governed majoritarianism was important. You know, when George Bush lost the popular vote in 2000, he didn't brag about strategy or how he was going to do it even Win, win with losing even the popular vote more in 2004. In fact, quite to the contrary, he told his campaign to, to campaign in blue states simply for the purpose of increasing the popular vote share. The Republican Party has largely given up on the idea that it will be a majoritarian party. You don't hear it talk about mandates the way Reagan did or the way, you know, Bush did or, you know, you, it, it's largely now a shrinking party that wants to govern through an ever more complex set of election rules. You know, obviously gerrymandering in the House is the most obvious one, but we're now seeing some of, sort of that mentality transfer itself over to more to voting rules of more general applicability. And that that's very dangerous for democracy. But I think that that's I think that that's the calculus that they that they are making. Yeah, I mean, it's really striking the extent to which they've just completely given up on trying to appeal to a majority of Americans. They're opposing pretty much every single popular policy that Joe Biden's put forward in the state legislatures. They're not doing anything to address the issues that people really care about, whether it's COVID, the economy, guns, which is just becoming worse and worse, the epidemic of gun violence, uh, anything else. And they're basically just trying to double down on places where they can get an anti-democratic advantage. And they're thinking that they're just going to be able to gerrymander to keep control of state legislatures and to keep take back control of the U.S. House in 2022. They think that they can institute new voting laws that are going to make it harder for demographic change to have an impact in Texas or Arizona or Georgia. I would argue one of the reasons why Georgia went blue and Texas did not is because Georgia has automatic voter registration. Georgia has no excuse absentee voting. Georgia, for all its flaws, 
makes voting relatively easy compared to Texas, which doesn't even have online registration, let alone automatic registration, let alone a no excuse absentee voting. You can only vote by mail in Texas if you're under 65, if you're out of town. Did you know that, uh, Mark? Yes. Mark knows this very, yeah, very well. <laughs> but I mean, it's crazy. I mean, you can yeah. even cite COVID as a reason to vote by mail in Texas in 2020 if you were under 65. They said it was, it was not amazing? a disability. And, uh, the reason I, I said that uh, for my listeners is that Mark was very involved in uh, that legal fight on that in Texas. Well, they kind of, isn't that right, Mark? They sort of de facto had to accept online registration in Texas. And then there's now a part of the bill, I believe, that basically says they can't do that anymore. So. Yes, that's as a result of a lawsuit that we brought in the Texas Civil Rights Project brought, you wound up with de facto registration. And now they are looking at ways to undo that. But you couldn't vote by mail if you're under 65. Basically right? can't vote by mail if you're under 65 unless you're out of town, have a disability that is not COVID, or are in jail. So I mean, if you want if you want to vote, if you want to vote by mail in Texas, if you're under 65, you basically have to commit a crime um, that that will allow you to, to vote by mail. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to do it. And, and also, this is a state where you can vote with a gun permit, but not a student ID. Now, I would argue that that makes sense because owning a gun is a big responsibility. You could kill someone with a gun, a bigger responsibility than being a student at a state university. And if we can come full circle to where you started this, you know, I think Ari made a very important point at the beginning that I think ties to what he just said about Texas, which is that against that backdrop of everything he just said, what is Texas doing? They're actually criminalizing election officials' conduct. So it will have a further chilling effect on who's willing to administer elections, how they administer elections. How are they doing that? Explain that, please. Go ahead, Ari. Well, there's there's a few different ways they're doing it. But one thing they're saying is that uh, if you give a mail ballot application to a voter who didn't request one, that's a state jail felony, according to Texas law. So for example, if Harris County or any other county was to send out mail ballot applications to voters, which states do all the time. A lot of states even send ballots to all registered voters. That would actually be a felony for election workers in the state of Texas. That's really, really, really extreme. There's another provision that says that poll watchers, partisan poll watchers, can videotape voters who ask for assistance with their ballot. And if the election officials restrict them from doing so, the election workers can be charged with a felony. I mean, this is really, I don't know, Mark, I don't know how much you've seen this in other states, but this is really, really, really crazy to me that these these kind of things are even on the table. Yeah, I agree with you. You know what was funny is that, uh, remember that uh, Amy Klobuchar asked Amy Coney Barrett if she thought voter intimidation, it, she asked her, is voter intimidation uh, a crime? And Amy Coney Barrett said she didn't know. <laughs> you remember I do this? remember it. And it was like such a cut and dry question that you could have easily answered without violating any sort of precedent or any kind of revealing your views. I mean, you, you could have just said yes, and that, that would have kind of been the end of it. And then she she just said she didn't know, which was just so revealing about. She didn't know, and Amy said it was. And then I, I texted Amy, and I said, tomorrow, why don't you lead off by saying, I'm sorry I started with such a hard one yesterday. I'm going to 
make one a little bit easier. How about Grand Theft Auto? <laughs> I mean, how could you not know? How could you be in the Supreme Court and not know that voter intimidation was a crime? Oh, voter intimidation? No, that's that's uh, that, that's fine. <laughs> what the hell? I mean, the other thing, the context of this also, of course, is that the Republican Party for many years was constrained in its quote-unquote ballot security activities, its ability to challenge voters at the polls. And that consent decree, which Mark knows very well, was lifted. And so it's now easier for them to challenge voters at the polls, but it's explicitly now written into law or will be written to law if this legislation passes in Texas, that partisan poll watchers are going to have all of this new freedom in which to potentially intimidate voters. And it's going to actually be a crime for election officials to try to counteract that. I mean, that makes absolutely no sense. That you, you would expand rights for partisan poll watchers, but you would restrict rights and potentially criminalize the activities of those people that are running the election. I mean, that, that makes no sense unless your goal is to reduce turnout and to create more voter intimidation. Mark? Yes. Goodbye. Thank you again. Thank you, Al. Thank you, Ari. Uh, this was really great. And I hope everyone follows along with what Ari is writing because it's really important. And I hope you invite me back, Al. Thanks so I much, will. Mark. Great to I talk will. to you. Not not real soon. You know, <laughs> You'll space it out. There's only so You'll much. But someday you'll have that. I can't believe you didn't lead the show out with the fact that you knew Mark before he was cool. I mean that that's like that's how maybe that's, cool. that's exactly that. You made Mark. I mean I made him cool. I, I made thought him you cool. would I thought you would have played that up a little bit more. <laughs> okay, <laughs> bye. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat. 
Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.